Hello and welcome back to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Yes, we are back after, what, I think about a month long wait, maybe five weeks. And there are, and you know, there's a lot to discuss. There's really a lot to discuss. I will, I will discuss first off a part of why I hadn't done the podcast for so long. So the first thing is that in early March, um, I had gone out with my mother and my grandmother and my aunt came along. We flew out to Montana to see my uncle. Never been out there. He lives out there and and it is and to, to my, and my grandmother to stay with him for a while. And first off, I will say Montana is just one of the most natural, maybe the most naturally beautiful place I have ever seen. It's gorgeous. If you get the opportunity to go out there, please do so. And believe me, I've been you know up and down the East Coast, and I've been to Canada briefly, to Mexico briefly, the Caribbean parts. I've been fortunate. I've been very fortunate to travel Midwest and the South. And Montana may be the most naturally gorgeous place. Well, with the, with the exception of probably Niagara Falls, now that I think now that I think about it, uh, that I have ever seen. So please take the opportunity to go out go out there. They will appreciate you. They are lovely people. But anyway, I stay out there for a couple of days. I have a little time between 87's games. Fly out there, come back, and of course you have to fly through. It's very hard to find a a nonstop flight from you know, one of the New York City airports to any airport in Montana. So we had to fly through Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, also, lovely people. I wish we had a longer layover just to hang around there, but first time I'd ever been there either. And I left my laptop underneath the seat in front of us on the plane that landed in Minneapolis coming back home, that landed in Minneapolis from Montana. And so I had to credit the people at the, the airline who put up with me and eventually found the laptop I had to get it back so I, I and the laptop means a lot to me because even though it's I've had it since the beginning of high school I've I, 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 I have my spotting charts on it I take my I use use it to take notes I use it for the podcast and so that explains the first couple of weeks of me not being able to do the podcast over this last stretch the third week, I think I had a, a, a playoff game to cover that probably was Thursday, and I had just gotten the laptop back. I think on Tuesday, so I figured I, I or, or Monday maybe, and I figured oh, I have to I you know I got to work on my notes, I'm gonna mark it down, and I knew that the next week I was going to be covering the Frozen Finals in Providence, and we'll be talking for most of this podcast about that about that experience, which was incredible, even compared to last year when I got to go, but more about that in a minute. So yeah, so the, so the fourth so the fourth week I was in Providence. I was working the Frozen Finals, and it was such a hectic week and such a such long days that it really and you're doing such such incredible note taking at, le- at least from my standpoint that you don't really have the time to do it and or the time to really put on a good podcast. So that's where I've been. I will first off I will say. Thank you for being patient if you're a huge fan of the show and because our listenership actually from our last podcast I think was actually a little larger than the average listenership of or at least in recent weeks 
And yes, I do look at how many people listen. And, you know, we try. Try our best. I know it's not... This is not the Office Ladies podcast. It's not the, the highest of quality, but we're trying to bring you the best content. Trying to bring you a good take on, on interesting content. So it was a really interesting couple of weeks, and I'll go over a few things that have happened in the in the past few weeks. So Tom Brady returning, disappointing probably a lot of people around the NFL who are fans of other teams, but it, even though it probably was horrible for a lot of people, it does make a lot of sense that he would return because he is still in better physical condition now, far better physical condition now than he was when he started in this league, probably even when he won his first Super Bowl or two. And he obviously still can play. He still has the throwing ability. He's still smart. He's gotten he's grown even smarter about the game. Even though Bruce Arians, of course, is retiring and a credit to him on an outstanding career. He finally gets a Super Bowl near the end. And it 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 you know, for a guy his age who really didn't coach as many years as you might think as a head coach, he accomplished so much as a coordinator. You remember what he did when Chuck Pagano, when when he had to, was the interim coach for Chuck Pagano, when Pagano had cancer in Indianapolis and the year they had together in Andrew Luck's rookie year, what he did in Arizona, what he did in Tampa Bay, and Todd Bowles will take over. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't know how good Todd Bowles is going to be. I'll say... Compared to most Jets coaches in recent history, he, he did a pretty good job. They they came very close to making the playoffs in 2015. Very smart defensive coordinator, and I think that could work out. But you put Tom Brady with you put Tom Brady there, and you're in a good spot. And and then the, the other thing is Tom Brady, the guy who's won more than anyone in the NFL's history as a player. It would only make sense. That he goes out, it would seem very strange to see him go out with a team that does not win the Super Bowl. It seems very, very odd. But then again, the 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 argument against is that oh, if he keeps winning, he's going to know he can still keep winning and he could keep playing forever and ever and ever. So that's the weird thing. But he put on a career performance in uh, in that comeback against the Rams, a team that would eventually go on go on to win the Super Bowl. So th- there's the Brady aspect, and of course Tampa will still be a frightening team to beat. Aaron Rodgers returns. A lot of things happened. You have, uh, g- moving on to the MLB, you have the MLB returning. Everybody finally got a little less cheap, thank goodness. And the one thing that really makes me mad is that there's a universal DH. I know there are people who are a lot more forward thinking, that's the way you want to put it, regarding the universal DH, and I understand that it makes sense that both leagues are play the same, but then another counter-argument there is that not all ballparks are the same, not all, so many places are hitters parks, so many places are pitchers parks, you have a place with a 37-foot wall in left field that's been accepted for over 100 years, and you know we don't we don't say oh every ballpark should be the same, so I don't. And again, I'm a purist in terms of that. I prefer a more defensive game. The other thing is you're kind of extending 
the game, people for so many years have talked about, oh, the game is getting longer, the game is getting longer. By having a DH in there, you have a better chance that there's not going to be an out, and you have more offense, which slows down the game even further. That's the thing. You can't have your cake and eat it too, where you have an offensive showdown, and then you have you, you have a 12-11 game every night without it ending in four and a half hours. It's impossible for that to work, especially if so many times now it's home run, strikeout, or walk. Because a strikeout's going to take three pitches, a walk's going to take four, you're hoping for a flyout, a ground out, etc., etc., something that can last one pitch. And so that, that also hurts the game, I think. A couple of big signings. Trevor Story goes to Boston, which is especially big for that lineup since they lost Kyle Schwarber. And he's a guy who is a good hitter to all fields, can hit for power. We'll really enjoy that, that green monster, I think, for doubles and even for homers because it is still fairly short porch for how tall that, how tall that structure is. Anthony Rizzo returns to the Yankees. Jacob DeGrom is hurt, and God, know, God knows when he's going to return. The Mets are in a disarray, kind of. Uh, going to the NHL, Claude Giroux, probably the highlights of this entire trade deadline, I would say, at least off the top of my head, getting traded to the Florida Panthers. And the Flyers also really screwed... Well, it's one thing. You know, you understand that you have to trade Giroux eventually. A guy that deserve, really deserves to win the Stanley Cup. A guy who has been, I think, one of the most underrated players at both ends of the ice since he came into this league. People always talk about Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin and Patrick Kane and, you know, and more recent, uh, Patrice Bergeron, David Pot that the perfection line of Marchand, Bergeron, and Pasternak. Talk about a few other guys. Not enough people really talk about Claude Giroux and what he's done for the Philadelphia Flyers organization got them, was a, a part of that team reaching the Stanley Cup final in his first year, uh, had incredible success in Philadelphia for many of those years, and just hasn't won the whole thing. Even though he's never won the Hart Trophy, he's never won the Stanley Cup, uh, or the Conn Smythe, of course, uh, he's never won a Selkie Trophy, never won the Selkie Trophy, but a, a guy that I think does not get enough credit for what he has done for the city of Philadelphia and what he has done for Flyers hockey. I'm pretty sure he's second in most offensive categories behind only Bobby Clark in the history of the organization, which is something when you have guys like Bill Barber and Moose DuPont and Reggie Leach, and that's just the 70s. So you go to more recent uh, James Van Riemsdyk, Danny Briere, Mark Recchi for a time, Eric Lindros, uh, Simon Gagne, Scott Hartnell, well, Hartnell's not the most... Uh, Jeff Carter, Mike Richards, a lot of incredible players that have come out of that organization, and Drew stands above almost everyone. And then the other thing was uh, Kansas winning the national championship, Mike Krzyzewski's career coming to an end after five national championships. There's the argument over Coach K versus Wooden. Look, again, I lean toward Wooden... And John Wooden might not even necessarily be the best college basketball coach ever anyway, because you can make a very good argument that Gino Auriemma is the best college basketball coach. And then you go into the, you know, the men's, the, the man-woman argument. Can you compare them? It's, look, you're playing men against men, women against women. It doesn't have anything, 
and then there's the argument, oh, who is somebody stronger than the other, which is just kind of ridiculous. But John Wooden, outstanding coach, 11 championships in, I think, 13 seasons. It's a different kind of success for Krzyzewski to win five in this era. And maybe with, I mean, you know, John Wooden had Kareem Abdul, well, then Lou Alcindor, who is probably the top, well, I give I go Will Chamberlain again, but probably a top two center in the history of the NBA, maybe the best center in the history of college basketball. He had Bill Walton to follow him up. He had a number of iconic guys. And Krzyzewski maybe didn't have that level of guys. Plus you have more got more players leaving after maybe a year. And, and he had more sustain, sustained success where he, he did this over a long period of time. He stretched five titles over, what, 25 seasons, I think. So it's different, but he is truly one of the greatest ever to coach. I know he gets knocked out by UNC. That's a tough pill to swallow. It's a tough way to go to get knocked out by UNC, an eight seed in UNC in the Final Four, but it's something. I want to talk a little bit about St. Peter's because, first off, that's because that there's you know there's a personal connection for a lot of people in New Jersey and the New York City area. I believe St. Peter's is the first New York City area team because I don't really count UConn because really Hartford's kind of a, it's her stores and Hartford are kind of their own thing. It's not really New York. It's not really Boston. It's kind of in the middle. But I think St. Peter's is the first team to reach the men's Final Four since Seton Hall, actually, in 1989, when they probably should have won the national championship. I find, I eventually finally watched that phantom foul play, and it's true. Seton Hall should have won the whole thing. They should have beaten Michigan. But I think St. Peter's is the first team in this area to reach the Final Four since then, which is something considering St. John's is a team that's won five NIT titles in, you know, like the pre- Al McGuire era, like before uh, the NCAA would not uh, would make you take the invitation to the NCAA tournament, you could not turn it down for the NIT. Uh, St. John's is an all-time great program. You have a number of good pro- Rutgers has reached the Final Four. Seton Hall won an NIT title. They made the title game, probably should have won. You have a number of great smaller schools in the area in uh, Fordham and uh, you know LIU. I would say uh, NYU is kind of a historically great program, sort of Columbia, and you know I've St. Francis, uh, St. Francis, Brooklyn, Wagner, and then you have St. Peter's, a number, uh, Iona, a number, uh, and maybe I guess you can kind of count Marist, maybe Fairfield, a number of pretty good programs in the area, uh, but you know, nobody had really made it in that long. So, and for St. Peter's as a 15 seed to get the to the Elite Eight is remarkable. And they gave UNC a run for their money for a decent amount of that game. I said, I didn't, I certainly did not take, I certainly did not think St. Peter's was going to upset Kentucky. But once they did win that game, I thought, and I said, and I was, I was rebuffed regarding this multiple times, that they honestly could play in the, I think I said Elite Eight because that didn't look like a very strong region to me. That didn't look like an incredibly strong region. I didn't think Purdue was that strong even. I thought, look, if you can knock off Kentucky, you can beat almost anybody in that bracket. And then once Baylor got knocked off, I said I could could genuinely see them in the Final Four. 
I genuinely think it's possible. And so they got all the way to the Elite Eight. It was an incredible run. They beat a two-seed and a three-seed, but just ultimately ran out of gas. And now Shaheen Holloway. Now, I don't believe I ever... I don't believe I ever interviewed him. I don't believe. I could be mistaken. But Shaheen Holloway, of course, you probably know I went to Seton Hall. I called games for Seton Hall. Probably would have called uh, tournament games in March Madness if not for the pandemic my senior year and for for a team that very well could have won the whole thing, honestly. And I don't mean I don't just mean the Big East tournament. I mean, I genuinely think they could have won a national title. But Shaheen Holloway was the assistant coach at Seton Hall for I think four years. He was certainly the assistant coach until until the end of the 2017-18 season under Kevin Willard. Kevin Willard goes to Maryland. The timing of these announcements I don't think were really great because either of these announcements, because they both came before before the end of the NCAA tournament. I've never liked that. I've never liked, in general, that coaches can have those discussions with teams before the end of a season, and it can't really be considered tampering. It's just kind of an open secret. But, you know, that's that's just me. But Kevin Willer goes to Maryland after 12 outstanding years at Seton Hall. I got to talk to him a few times. I got to interview him a couple of times. And Kevin Willard is... A fine coach. I, I can o- I can only say that. Maybe not the most jovial person, perhaps, but uh, very. Uh, he, he was courteous with his time. I will. I will say. Well, he's a basketball coach. That's why. That, that's why he wasn't the most, you know, most outgoing person. But v- definitely courteous with his time. I know. You know, for a student radio station, we didn't have unlimited access to the coaches, but I think to be able to interview him, you know, in the, in the tunnels outside locker rooms at Maryland or at Xavier, that's, that's the other funny thing. Actually, I called, I was on color for a game my junior year where Seton Hall beat Maryland in college park, which I still find kind of funny. And, and they beat them the next year at the Prudential center. So I, I kind of found that pretty funny. But a Maryland is a program that's been in a bit of disarray for a while, especially for a program that has won a national championship before. Willard is a guy who turned around the Seton Hall program, a, a Seton Hall program that I had not realized was in trouble in more ways than one, both on the court and off the court, before he got there in, I think, 2010. Helped lead them to a Big East tournament championship in 2016, led them to a Big East regular season co-championship in 2020. They, of course, did not play the Big East Tournament. Well, they, Seton Hall did not play in the Big East Tournament. They had gotten through one half of basketball in the whole Big East Tournament between St. John's and Creighton before everything got shut down. I was, uh, I, again, from a personal standpoint, I was probably about five hours from calling Seton Hall and Butler at Madison Square Garden. I'd never called a game there before, but the, uh, this is... So it's weird. It's kind of the end of an era, so I do have... Uh, even though I was always neutral and unbiased, and I'll actually talk a little more about that later, but uh, even though I was always neutral and unbiased, I, I did I did have ultimately a personal connection in some ways with Kevin Willard, with Shaheen Holloway. 
I do remember when Holloway left, we were doing, I don't remember who I was doing this with, but we did a show on, on WSOU, Seton Hall's Pirate Radio, student the student station, called Pirate Primetime. It was a core, it was at least at that point, a core point of Sunday night sports programming. We discussed Holloway leaving to take the job at St. Peter's, local school. We knew that Kevin Willard also had been funneled in from Iona. Seton Hall had gotten a lot of their, uh, a few of their coaches in men's and women's basketball from Iona. And we pretty much said, oh, you know, if, if things go differently, if things change, because there, of course there have been rumors that Willard would go to Pittsburgh or to Maryland or, or a larger program, that Holloway could perhaps someday be a good replacement. And lo and behold, it happened. He, he did his job at St. Peter's. Somehow actually won more games at St. Peter's in the tournament than Kevin Willard ever did at Seton Hall, even though he did a, an outstanding job with the program. This is a, that's a program that made the tournament, I think, five times in a six-year span near the end. Pro- would have been six out of seven if that 2020 March Madness had been played. So uh, just a great, two great hires, really, for Maryland and for Seton Hall. Uh, for Kansas to win that whole thing, of course, remarkable that that you come back from 16 down. You know, it's funny. I had been, I was kind of casually watching the game for parts of it. And then early on in the second half, I hadn't realized that uh, the game had come back yet. So I flipped to a movie and I knew they were down 40 to 25 at the half. I come back after a few minutes and very quickly it's 45 to 37 and then 38. And then Kansas storms all the way back. I know, I know UNC with Davis and, with love and I, I I can't remember how many guys it was like date I, I want to say it was definitely love Baycott and Manic all looked banged up for much Manic I I can't believe Manic played that well for after getting elbowed right like square in the forehead unintentionally of course getting elbowed square in the forehead at that at the start of that game I can't believe he played as well as he did and then Baycott. And love and I, I, a couple guys to basically turn their ankles, and it just did not look good. So remarkable that UNC could make a run that well and and play that game that closely, even if they blew a lead that big, with a first year guy in Hubert Davis, and with all these injured stars, it was quite a run. I will say one more thing from a kind of a personal standpoint. Seton Hall also did reach the WNIT final. And I know that's not something that usually gets a lot of attention. And not to mention, I'll also just bring up that South Carolina, of course, defeated UConn to win the Women's National Championship on the back of Aaliyah Boston and head coach Don Staley. They knock off UConn in the national title game. But the WNIT... I I didn't really get to watch any of the games. It's unfortunate, and you know, Buick has run an ad or an ad campaign recently. I believe it's Buick about how uh, women's college athletics, women's athletics in general, but part of its women's college athletics don't really get the. I think get like ten percent. Is it like forty percent of the media coverage? No, no, it's ten percent actually of the media coverage. I think that men's sports do 
It's especially unfortunate for college where it's a lot more common. But I, even though I think about 40, I think it was like 40% of, I've got to look this up exactly. I think it's 40% of collegiate women are athletes. For, or 40% of, of collegiate athletes are women, but they get about 10% of the coverage, which is ridiculous because you could not find the WNIT on television for, for much of this tournament. And I think even at the end, they only aired it on CBS Sports. I think it was the championship game aired on CBS Sports in regards to the Seton Hall women's games. I think that was it. I don't think any of the other ones were on television. But they make this incredible run. They win a couple of games on the road, a kind of road game against Columbia, and then a big road game against Middle Tennessee State. I thought the craziest thing was the fact that they had to go from Middle Tennessee State directly to South Dakota State. I think and played the next day, whereas the NCAA tournament, I think men's and women's, they both they both have the day in between the final four and the title game. And on top of that, they're at a neutral they're at a neutral site the entire time. I can't possibly imagine there is one direct public flight, one direct commercial flight flight that goes from Tennessee to South Dakota. So I would have figured they'd have to charter. But I can also say that in our time, in my time at WSOU, WSOU in particular, but also Pirate TV, but in my time at Seton Hall, the women's basketball program was so incredibly kind to us, so lovely. And I think part of that is they knew that WSOU was the only radio outlet for the women's basketball program, whereas for men's, they have, I think it's uh, not 710, 770, I think, AM, as well as WSOU, plus they have more television coverage. But I, I will say the, the team of the, the, the SID, the then SID, Bobby Mullen, and then later on Matt Sweeney, who was always the loveliest person. Coach Tony Bazella was always incredibly kind to us, especially when it came to uh, just uh, media discussion, coverage, uh, court, uh, Coach Lauren DeFalco, uh, Assistant Coach Lauren DeFalco, a, a number, uh, Marissa Flagg, a number of these people were wonderful to us. They treated us like family, really, especially on the road. Just very kind to us. It's a, it is a, a well-run program from top to bottom. And they do it the right way, always just genuinely kind and it's, it's also a women's basketball program that is rather underappreciated. So to for them to make it to the final is something that, the, of what, even if they got, they, they got, they lost by 32 points to South Dakota State in the final. But they still made it all the way there. I still have the idea, I think, that you could shorten the NIT, NIT, the WNIT, push it up or, or push it back or move it up a few days, move it up a couple of weeks to try to get it before March Madness and the winner of the tournament gets an automatic bid. I'd love to see that. And then there's, there is one more thing I would like to mention. It's not, it's not sports related, but it's something that means something to me and probably a lot of people who are more musically interested, pop culturally interested. And that was just the untimely really 
untimely passing of Taylor Hawkins. If you don't know Taylor Hawkins, he was the and you, you hadn't heard about this, I'd, I'd be surprised if you did. Uh, he was the drummer for Foo Fighters for like 25 years, I think. I also say this because I'm a huge fan of Foo Fighters, or, or one of my favorite bands. Everlong is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's a very uh, personal, relatable song. I first really got turned on that song in particular, I think, just from watching David Letterman's last show. It was in 2015. It, they, they had played it in 2000 on his show. It was his first show back in about six weeks after, a, I think, a quintuple bypass and open-heart surgery. Great song about uh, just kind of rebound love uh, co coming from the end of a relationship and, and into a new one. And it's, a it's a beautiful song, great song, great pump-up song too, really. It's... Uh, Taylor Hawkins was actually not the drummer on that album or on that single. I think it was actually Dave Grohl who was the drummer on that track, on the soundtrack, or on the album. And they just recorded it separately. But Taylor Hawkins was the drummer for... He previously was the drummer for Alanis Morissette. And then the Foo Fighters pretty much brought him in trying to get him to, to get somebody else, trying to get him to find somebody else that helped with the search to bring somebody else in. And that he eventually, just thinking that he wouldn't want to come in. But it turned out he wanted to work more with the band than with a solo act. So he joined. He'd been there ever since. He was only 50 years old. It was... I, I He had, unfortunately at the time of his passing, and he was... Uh, married with uh, with three children, but he had ten substances in his uh, system at the time of his passing. Um, so it, it was an overdose. He had uh, struggled with, uh, with with drug addiction at times in the past. I don't I don't I don't know if he had had very recently, but it's just another. Another really untimely, uh, you know, we've all got to go sometime, but 50 is far too young, especially for a guy who is that beloved, that talented, that appreciated. And, you know, I, I, I hope the best for everybody. I know the other night when I was driving home, I know I was listening to Alt 92.3, we were coming home from Providence, actually, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, we were coming home from Providence, and Alt 92.3 had kind of intermittently played some live show from Foo Fighters, and you just realize the impact of that band, the, the impact of their music, uh, just the, the revitalization of rock, but I, I the... I just say to you, if you have an issue, please tell someone. Please, even if you know you think it's it's only hurting you, it's not. It's hurt. It's hurting a lot of people. I can't. I believe me. I can't tell you. I'm fortunate to say I don't. I don't know. I don't believe I know anyone personally who's had that big a problem. But if you if you are 
involved with that sort of thing, God forbid, or, or if somebody you know is involved with that, please do something. Say something. Do something. Because you really, you do not know when, when too late will come. Um, but anyway, moving on, um, let's talk about the Frozen Finals now. I was driving back from Providence uh, with Anthony DiPaolo. So that, that's, that's the first thing. So if you don't remember, Frozen Finals are the final tournament for the Eastern Hockey League. And that is the League of the New Jersey 87s, the team I cover during the regular season and into the early postseason. And I got to work as the rinkside reporter again for the Frozen Finals. A little different this year. One, because it was... Uh, well, first off, we were supposed to have Anthony last year. Anthony, of course, my broadcast partner, the guy who brought me in to, the 80, uh, to, to work and cover the 87s organization and to cover the league. It is... Uh, uh, no doubt, in large part because of him, that I got to work the Frozen Finals last year in West West, Ch West Chester, Pennsylvania. I, what I didn't really realize is that it was in it was normally in Providence. I think it was more the COVID situation last year that caused it to be in Westchester. Even then, even at that point, I think I was only I only had the first of two shots. Well, now three, but two shots for my initial vaccine. And so it was a very different experience last year. The Providence is a lot closer to, I would say, this the center point of all the teams in the league. But it was an incredible experience. One to have, but Anthony was unable to work at the Frozen Finals last year. This year, I was so glad to have him back, especially because he had missed out. On the 2020 Frozen Finals, uh, the I, I had not been hired yet, but he had missed out on the 2020 Frozen Finals because of the, you know, it would have been like a month into the shutdown. So to have him there was a wonderful thing. He was the beat writer for the EHL games. He was the play-by-play -play broadcaster for the EHLP games. And the league was so kind as to pair me up with him as I did color commentary for those. The other thing was, uh, returning to Providence, I I have been to Providence once. I, the, the tournament was back in Providence. It was at Schneider Arena on the campus of Division I Providence College, a national championship program, a D1 national championship men's ice hockey program. Won the title back in 2015 over Boston University as as made a lot of contributions to hockey, including the NHL. I would say the most notable contribution is Lou Lamarillo, the longtime general manager of the New Jersey Devils, helped build their three-time Stanley Cup championship organization, as well as his great great work with the uh, brief work with the Toronto Maple Leafs and now with the New York Islanders. He is a Providence grad. I believe he was their, their AD for a long time. I think he was also their coach. He also played there. So that was really something for me, knowing that the Devils are in New Jersey, and not just that. I, I'm, I mean, on a good day, I'm probably about 20, 30, 30 minutes maybe from the Meadowlands where the Devils used to play and where they had probably their best years so far. So that was something. 
Providence is also has a lot of personal meaning for me because the only other time I had been there was Valentine's Day 2020. The Valentine's Day part isn't really relevant, but it just happened to be Valentine's Day. Heaven Hill and I, my friend Heaven Hill, and I were broadcasting Seton Hall men's basketball at Providence. This was not on their campus. This was at the Dunkin' Donuts Center where Providence men's basketball plays primarily and where the Providence Bruins of the AHL play. And that turned out to be the last road trip I would ever go on for Seton Hall. I traveled to a number of places with WSOU. We traveled to you know, Dallas for the radio show. I got to travel internationally. We went to Bimini in the Bahamas for the Junkanoo Jam for women's basketball for their Thanksgiving tournament. Went to Chicago, went to Milwaukee. Went for men's to Omaha, to Cincinnati, did the Big East Baseball Tournament in Mason, just outside of Cincinnati. Went to Georgetown, went to Villanova, so D.C., Philadelphia. Did games at St. John's. I can, I can say that I've called games in New York City. Went, all of, went to Toledo, went to Michigan, all over the place, really. And we were very fortunate. But, of course, nobody saw, nobody really saw the pandemic coming. Nobody really saw the shutdown coming. And so, if not for that, I would have been calling games at Madison Square Garden that night, March 12th, would have been, the, and but depending on what Seton Hall would have done, I, very, I could have been there, very well could have been there, for the 13th and for the 14th for the semifinal and the title game as a, I think as a beat writer, then as a color commentator, just as a rotation. My friends Dalton Allison and Jose Feliciano. And then Seton Hall definitely would have made the tournament, and the odds looked good that they were going to play in Albany. And they were going to send all probably all three of us up there to cover the tournament. And then, and then if they got far enough, maybe two the rest of the way. Maybe even, uh, this was a very dangerous team, a team that very well could have played in Atlanta for the national championship. But that was not meant to be. It turns out, turns out that Providence was the last place that I would visit as a broadcaster while at Seton Hall. So it, it didn't really, it never really hit me, but it was, it, quite an interesting journey just to go into in two years to go full circle and then Providence also kind of big for me because I am half Italian I'm a great proponent uh, of the Italian culture a number of Italian immigrants who made their way to Providence Federal Hill has some of the best Italian food I've ever had that has not come out of my grandmother's kitchen or my mother's. My mom has done a great, is an excellent Italian chef. Or my dad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, a number of these people. But outstanding. It has. It ha It actually has great pizza. It's not like you just. You know, some people around this area, around my area, say, "Oh, New Jersey, New York, they have the best pizza." Chicago deep dish pizza. Yeah, it's different. It's very good. But I would say Cincinnati actually has decent 
pizza if you go to La Rosa's. Providence, very good pizza. I, I did not expect to find such good pizza in New England. Very good pizza, very good Italian food in general. And then I also finally got the true coffee milk experience by purchasing autocrat syrup, which is the real which is the real thing. I recommend going up to Providence, that's the point. And I certainly would have taken in more of the city if we had more time. But we were working probably 12, 14 hour days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, working four games each of those days, worked two games on Wednesday, worked two championship games on Sunday. And it was quite the week. We did not have a lot of free time. But that's not the point. So uh, the Eastern Hockey League was nice enough to uh, to put us up to have us there. We were very kind. And I can tell you that this is such a well-run, well-oiled machine. You, you do not realize how much really goes on in the background. First off, I will say Anthony DiPaolo... Brought me on. He's a true professional. He's an outstanding broadcaster. He's a great writer. I have the I, I have the great fortune to call him a friend and the great fortune to call him a colleague. I am incredibly grateful to him for almost single-handedly for for undoubt, undoubtedly without him I would not have been there. I am incredibly grateful to him. And then we had such an excellent crew for this. Tournament, And I think everybody played to neutrality, even though we work all for different teams. Tyler Orego, who I'm not sure if he worked the Frozen Finals before, but I had not met him before. He does play-by-play -play for the New Hampshire Avalanche. He does a fantastic job. He did play-by-play -play for the EHL games for this tournament and then wrote for the EHLP games. And he was outstanding. He's a very funny guy. He's a very nice guy. It was wonderful meeting him, and I will say he was a welcome addition this year compared to last year. I will also say they, they, they again, did, the Eastern Hockey League again did a fantastic job by bringing in uh, Lawrence Smith, who had been working for the league all year, has been working for the Worcester Junior Railers, and doing interviews all season. I think she adapted really well to a job during the EHLP games. She did essentially what I would do for the EHL games or what I would normally do for the season, and that is just report between the benches. Not necessarily, in, not necessarily having to do the, inter, the interview, in addition to doing the interview aspect, but just doing reports between the occasional whistle. And that's not an easy job. I know that's not an easy job. That's not even her primary job, but I think she adapted really well. I have really grown to appreciate, I, I really grew to appreciate these people over the last week, these two very kind, very funny people who did an, an excellent job, who are just very good at their job. They are very good at their respective jobs, and I hope to work with them for, for a long time to come. And then some people who I knew from last year, first off, Neil Raven, who is the associate commissioner of the league. I don't, some people know him. I don't think a lot of people realize how much he actually does behind the scenes, how much he does single-handedly, what he is really responsible for. And uh, just in terms of logistics and scheduling and, I mean, he brings so much stuff by himself from home to, uh, 
to just appeal to everybody. And he's as hard a worker as anyone. I, I, I am so grateful that he was kind enough to bring me on, to bring Anthony on, to bring all these people on. I'm very grateful. Joe Bertania, the commissioner of the league, who is just a hockey lifer, working for Hockey East for so long, as knowledgeable as anyone was very kind in uh, response. He off, uh, um, he's been very kind to me. Uh, Jefferson Mills, who is very funny, very sweet guy, very uh, probably the best public address person I know, but he also does an outstanding job at color commentary. He was the color guy for the EHL games. He is uh, he was the public address announcer, and he you know he had to be the, the color guy and the public address uh, he or he was willing to be the color guy and the public address guy for the EHL. And so just standing next to him during the EHLP games as I did color, and he would hand Anthony and I, or just show Anthony and I his notes, who got the scoring. He was so incredibly helpful, uh, very professional, very kind, but a very funny guy, wonderful to work with him. And then another person who I met last year in Westchester is Trevor Blackburn, who is not really a part of the on-air broadcast team, but is a, an incredibly talented videographer who works for the Worcester Junior Railers during the season. His brother Jaden actually plays, has played for the EHLP team for the last couple of years. He's a very talented player. But Trevor, I met Trevor, I met his girlfriend, lovely guy, just very kind, funny. I can't say enough about these people. And he is incredibly skilled. I will say that. He is incredibly skilled. And so to share a booth with, uh, to, I, I had to share the, the that box, that little area between the penalty, between the benches, with him at times, and I would be, you know, we'd both be, we'd both accommodate each other. He'd slide out of the way as I would go on the air to report, and I would slide out of the way for most of the rest of the time, so he could get a better shot. And the same goes for uh, Dan Hickling, who, who worked in the box. Uh, I getting a lot of extended interaction with Dan and Margaret Hickling, uh, lovely people who, who do an outstanding job with, with all the photography and, and things like that from uh, uh, Gino Binda, who we had replay this year for, for the championship games on the goal line. You could you, just to review and replay whether uh, a puck crossed the line, whether there was goaltender interference, that was a key call in the EHLP title game that the New Hampshire, in which the Boston Junior Rangers won their third EHLP title. They defeated the New Hampshire Avalanche in overtime, four to three. There was a big call that would have tied the game for New Hampshire if it was ruled a goal. That Lane Brubaker Egner, who was phenomenal in this tournament, by the way, guy kid for the New Hampshire Avalanche, who was outstanding and and not just a great offensive player, but a great back checker a fine, fine player who's going to make a big a, a big imprint in this league, interfered with the goaltender, Mitchell Taylor, who played quite well for Boston, even though Jared Pacman really stood on his head. The, the Pacman, the whoop, 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 was really cool. The, the, the fan interaction, the family interaction was quite something. But the point is, actually, uh, Gino Binda who did so much with the officiating and the replay, 
was very kind to explain to Anthony and I why that call was made. I wasn't sure quite why the call was made initially as to why goaltender interference was called. New Hampshire would have tied the game if it had been called a goal. But he, he during the intermission, gave me the full explanation, and the key phrases pretty much were, instead of, uh, would the goal have gone in, if not for the play, it's, would the goaltender have been allowed to play his position? That's the difference. That's the important thing. And that's why it's absolutely right that it was no goal called. Boston ended up winning in overtime on a goal by Mike Bichetto, who was, I think, the leading scorer in the EHLP this year. He had an incredible family presence, and it was quite... The, it was quite the tournament. Quite the tournament from the EHLP, from all these very talented players. I have a number of spotting charts and line charts off to my right that have just kind of been folded up. They're not really crumbled, but they, they've been folded up a bit, and I still had them in my laptop bag from the other night when we finished this tournament. I was going to throw them out, and I, I probably will later, but I still just want to... I figured I'd just have them out to take a look at some of them. Some of these guys were really talented, and I apologize if you hear some you know, crinkling of paper, things like that. There were some guys who were so incredibly talented. Anthony Viola was the MVP of this tournament. He was so excellent on the rush for Boston. This is at the EHLP level. Uh, a number of really great, great players. Max Morris I saw earlier in the year for Boston when they played the 87s in wall. He's one of, one of the most skilled, maybe the most skilled player in that tournament. And his brother, Sebastian Morris, is, a, is also a fine defenseman. Uh, Jack Powers, Luke Ubetta had quite the tournament, especially for a guy who was an extra skater for much of the time. Chris Merriman has incredible speed. Uh, this, is, this is just Boston alone. Chris Merriman has incredible speed. And, I mean, look, Mitchell Taylor was, was solid in goal. For New Hampshire, quite the team. If you look at it, they have uh, Lane Brubaker-Egner, Outstanding two-way center score. Did end up scoring the tying goal, as a matter of fact, later on in that title game to force overtime. Ryder Kunin and Sergei Yakunin are both... Uh, Ryder Kunin is a heck of a shot. Sergei Yakunin is quite the skater. Had almost like a, a Gustav Nyquist-type turn where he just skates it around the entire zone one time. Just circles the entire zone. David Hassel's a fine captain. Uh, Jared Jared Pacman, really the Pacman, did everything he could. gave up Didn't give up a low number of goals, but made a number of phenomenal saves in this tournament. And I know that he will be doing great things within that New Hampshire organization. And then there are guys who didn't even make who didn't even make the final. Guys like Arhip Sidorovich for. For Vermont is an incredible player, uh, a nice shooter, and a great puck handler, great facilitator. Uh, you talk about uh, Robert Voss, who had a hat trick in the first game. Uh, you go to the the coaches in the championship game. Uh, you have uh, Michael Grace for Boston, Vinny Caligiri, who was very nice and welcoming as we spoke to him before the title game for Vermont, which is an incredible team. Seth Gustin, in his first year as the head coach, took a puck to the ear. He took a puck to the ear during the game, and then didn't his knees didn't buckle. He didn't go down, nothing, and just pretty much got back to, to yelling at his guys immediately. Get back on the ice. 
Not to mention, Seth Gustin, nicest guy. What a lovely guy. Lovely to talk to. And uh, just just a, a well-run organization. The one other team, the fourth team in the EHLP, uh, Philadelphia Little Flyers, Mark Catron, Anthony and I have, have spoken to him for the last couple of years now. And Mark, we see him the most often out of any coach other than Adam Hooley, the 87's head coach, or Connell McNeilis, the 87's EHLP head coach. Mark Hatron, really funny guy, really smart. And uh, our conversations with him before games uh, were great, especially when the 87's met the Little Flyers in both the EHL and EHLP playoffs. So that was very fun, and to see him again in the final. And that, that's a team that is very offensively skilled, with Johnny Lee and Logan Downs in particular. That's a very skilled top line. Very skilled top line. And even though the, the his EHL team got knocked out early, still a very skilled team and, and still has a very bright future. Uh, but just to discuss the EHL aspect of the tournament, it was, uh, first off, it was a really interesting setup in in Schneider Arena at Providence College. It's a beautiful campus, by the way. Uh, kind of reminds me quite a bit of Seton Hall's campus, just a little bit bigger. And I just say that in part because they're both Big East schools, they're both Northeast schools, both Catholic schools. Uh, in in a, a Providence in more of an urban environment, I would say, but uh, Seton Hall, I'd say, in a semi-urban environment right in the outskirts of Newark, and in turn in the outskirts of New York City, kind of like Providence with Boston. But... Uh, a really fascinating setup where I actually stood because the, so I'm between the two benches. There's no glass directly in front of me. I'm across from the penalty boxes as opposed to Jersey Shore Arena where I'm usually next to, the, I'm usually in the penalty box next to the scorer's table. So I'm across from it this time, but I'm going to set up at center ice. I have a great view. It's incredible. It's a little tough to see maybe in, in, the corner boards, depending on whether guys are standing up on the bench, but it's tough. But yeah, incredible, incredible setup. The one crazy thing is I'm actually on, when I'm there, you can, there are two ways to get to the bench, to get to that area. One is to, to go through the door, that go, uh, go through a door underneath, uh, underneath the arena, this lower level, go, you go to a, Ramp from the seats goes slowly down past the Zamboni area, kind of curl, go underneath, and then go through a door that goes directly to the benches. And then you have to, you know, either hop over, but I'm wearing a suit, so God knows I'm not going to do that and try to tear my pants. Just step on the ice for a moment and then go back into this air, go back into this area between the benches. The other way is, I think they didn't want us going in there, but the just because I, I guess they didn't want us touching anything, which is understandable. It's their building. It's fine. Uh, you can cut through like the trainer's office or the, the, yeah, the trainer, the, the training room just to get, and there's a little door that goes in there, but it's funny how this area is set up because so much of this is underneath it is below the ice surface like the locker rooms and the the training room, a lot of this stuff is, is below ice surface. And so you're actually on 
a ramp. It never plateaus. You were on a ramp that is going up to the ice surface and going up to this door that leads you onto the ice surface. And so it's funny. My knees were actually killing me by the end of that week, by the end of this past week. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it's just really funny. I, I mean, get, you got a good calf workout, I guess, but your knee, like your, your feet are slanted upward at, God, I don't know, maybe a 30 degree angle. I don't know. Maybe for, uh, it can't be more than 45. I can't possibly imagine, but I don't know, maybe like a 20, 30 degree angle. Your, your feet are slanted upwards. So it's kind of an odd situation, especially if you're standing on, like I had to turn, I'm at an angle facing, when I have to turn and face the camera. So it's even on, it's uneven there too, where I guess one foot might be a little lower than the other. So it's very strange, but, but fascinating. And I, again, I would not trade it for the world. And I am so grateful to the people at Providence College for having us there, especially, you know, the, uh, some of the guys who ran the ice surface, the guys who ran the Zamboni were, were very, very kind to us. But uh, everybody in the athletic department was very nice. We even got to talk to, we actually talked, talked briefly with a couple of uh, Providence men's players as they were practicing. I know Anthony spoke to a guy, I don't even remember his name, but a guy who actually played for the Providence Bruins. Providence Bruins practiced because there was a concert at Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin Donuts Center that night. They practiced at Schneider Arena between a couple of the EHL games one day. And Anthony spoke to a guy, he could probably bring this up, spoke to a guy I think he called a game for with the New Jersey Titans. And so uh, that's another thing to get from junior hockey to get to that level where you're one step from the NHL was uh, remarkable and really is a small world. But the the actual EHL, the actual setup, the actual games, incredible. So it was expanded this year. Of course, last year there were three EHLP teams. They only played round robin on Saturday, and then they had a title game on Sunday. This year they had four teams round robin, and then they had the title game on Sunday. For the EHL this year, they had they had six teams. They had four teams last year. They had six teams this year, where it was the four playoff division winners, and it was two wild card teams, where it was the the four losers of each division final would be able to play two. Uh, one team would face another one. One of the losers would face another loser. The other and the two others would face each other, and the two winners would be the wild card going to the frozen finals. So, I got to cover the postseason in general for the '87s when they were at home, and they were they fell to the Philadelphia Little Flyers in the second round. They knocked off the Connecticut Chiefs. Scored this guy Kyle Fulkerson, who's a fine hockey player, guy out of Montreal, Quebec. Looked like the best player on the ice. Finally broke through with a contribution. Tied the game with uh, 2.31 to play in regulation. Won it, I think, about 4.50 into overtime on the power play. Sent the 87s to Providence. And then, then on the other side, the New England Wolves upset the Boston Junior Rangers, who finished with the best record in the AHL this year. Won the title last year, despite losing a ton of their best players due to you know, age out and commitment, but still had probably the best goaltender in the league this year in Nathan Miller. And uh, New England upset them in overtime by a score of 2-1, to one, despite being heavily outshot. So the Wolves punched their ticket to the final, and we knew that after the 87s had won in the HLP last year, 
the Junior Rangers had won the EHL, that even going to the Frozen Finals, we already knew that they were going to be, that there was not going to be repeat champion, from, at least from the year before. So the, the way things worked out in the first day was ridiculous because it was the New Hampshire Avalanche who had the best remaining record after Boston was knocked out against the Walpole Express. You have the Philadelphia Little Flyers and the Worcester Junior Railers going up against each other. Walpole, probably a fairly heavy underdog, upsets New Hampshire by a score of 2 to nothing. in large part on the back of Jack Boschert, who was... Outstanding. Jack Boschert, their goaltender, who was just phenomenal in this tournament, helped carry them all the way to the final. I think gave up, I want to make sure here, gave up, yeah, what, I think four goals in three games in the entire tournament? No, four goals in, take it back, I think five goals in four games in the entire tournament. Had a shut. Let's see. He had a shutout in his first game. You know what? Actually, now that I think about it, I don't know if he played on Friday. But the point is, he was phenomenal. He had a goals against of probably close to one per game in this uh, in this tournament. He was phenomenal. He was the most crucial player to the wall to Walpole's success. And then you have two goals in that game from Jarrett Overland, who had had one uh, a defenseman who had had one goal in the regular season. Walpole upsets New Hampshire, and all, all of a sudden, if New Hampshire loses their next game on, on Thursday, they're out. And lo and behold, they lose to the three-seeded New England Wolves, another big underdog, in overtime, 2-1. to one. Uh, New England comes out with, like Walpole, a very, very good defensive structure and excellent goaltending in this tournament. Liam Kilgallen stood on his head against the Boston Junior Rangers. He stood on his head in this tournament. Got them to the semifinal. Jack Boschert did the same for Walpole. And and then, so then you have the the Wednesday night, you had the Little Flyers and the Worcester Junior Railers. Railers were up 2-0 fairly early. It was a 4-0 win, although the Little Flyers piled on a lot of chances. Two of those goals were late. It's not, it's not really indicative of the way the Little Flyers played necessarily. But uh, the Worcester, Worcester really has a deep, had a deep roster this year from... Uh, most notably, Matt Pimentel, who was all-tournament, a guy from East Providence. They have a lot of local guys from uh, Mike uh, Dimascolo, who was uh, is a Cranston guy, Cranston Borders, Providence. And I continue to mention that Cranston is the basis for Quahog from Family Guy. But a lot of guys from Massachusetts or, or a couple guys from Rhode Island. There was this awesome thing where their goaltender, Stefan Kalanick, his... Is from Austria. His his entire family had pretty much, I think, flown in, and it was the the sweetest thing. Is the the we love number thirty five. They had a, they had a poster board out. We love number thirty five. And then even on Friday when he did not play, just because the Railers had won their first game and all they were really playing for was seeding on Friday, they start the Railers started Cam Carroll in goal, his backup, and they put up a sign that says we love number thirty three too. Uh, that's Cam Carroll's number, which I, which was just uh, really funny and really cute. Uh, but the uh, Little Flyers went home. The Avalanche went home early, at least at the EHL level. Walpole and the Railers won. The Wolves stunned the Avalanche. They punched their ticket. The 87s, who had lost to the Little Flyers, they lost the regular season series to the Little Flyers 4-3. to And that was the difference, because they finished tied at the end of the regular season in terms of points. 
that was the difference between the Little Flyers getting the number one seed in the South and the 87s getting the number one seed in the South. Little Flyers, lo and behold, knock off the 87s in a clean sweep in a best of three in a uh, division final, although the 87s lost both those games by one goal. They were both fairly low-scoring games, and they outshot them by over, I think, 20 over the course of those two games. So you figured, you know, if they if they have a chance to, to play each other again, the 87s very well could pull it off. And lo, so lo and behold, the 87s do. They knock off the Little Flyers 6-2 to two in a really back-and-forth game. But to be fair, one of those goals was an empty netter. I, I, I think it was just one of those goals was an empty netter. It was a really back-and-forth game. It was, I think, 3-2 87s after 2. I genuinely thought the Little Flyers might have actually been the better team in that game even though, or at least for much of that game, whereas I thought the 87s might have been the better team in for the majority of the two games of the series they lost between those two teams. So the Little Flyers were knocked out. And so the crazy thing is, the first four games, by the time we get around to Friday, uh, all the, the, the teams that, that are going to reach the semifinals have been decided. The four teams that will reach the semifinals have been decided, and we already know that New Hampshire and Philadelphia the two teams with the best records of any team entering this tournament were gone by by the end of Thursday by the end of Thursday by Thursday evening early Thursday evening they were gone in the tournament that started Wednesday and the crazy the crazier thing these four games entering Friday the lower seeded team won every game the higher seeded team scored a combined three goals in those four games, including one overtime game, which is just incredible. It was utterly fascinating if you're a fan of chaos. And so Friday we had two games where really you're just playing for seeding, where it was Walpole and New England, Railers and the 87s. Railers and the 87s, who were probably the two favorites at that point, I would say, based on their depth and, I would say, their scoring ability. New England knocks off Walpole 2-0. Railers knock off the 87s 4-2 in a a fairly chippy game. And so we already knew that those four teams would play in the semifinals on Saturday. We just weren't sure who was going to play who. New England wins their one seed. Railers win their one seed. One plays the opposite two. So New England plays the 87s. Railers play Walpole. And... Saturday, the 87s knock off the Wolves by a score of three to one. Walpole, I was I was pretty surprised. I thought I I you know once we got to the end of Friday, I thought you know it, it seems like we might get to 87s and Worcester. At least I think I think those are the favorites. Two teams that made that made pretty good runs. Well, the 87s made a deep run of the Frozen Finals. Last year, finished with the best regular season record. The Railers are a very well-run organization from top to bottom. They have a lot of guys from their P team who are com- from their EHLP team who are coming up to their EHL team this year, and that EHLP team made it all the way to that championship game last year. So uh, they are. So it would make a lot of sense. It would be if it would be uh, plus the uh, uh, Railers and, and BJR, the Boston Junior Rangers, had had such a battle. So I figured, okay, odds are you're going to see. Railers and 87s in the final. Wolves put up a fight with the 87s. A good defensive struggle. The 87s won it by a score of 3-1. to one. 
the 87s in that game score two in the second, one in the third. Very, again, a low-scoring game. The 87s are a very skilled team, but it's funny. Last year, they were actually a much more offensively talented, much I would say much more offensively skilled team, but this was the team that just, that just really got, got it together, that really had everything done properly. Even for, like, equal depth at goaltending, it was remarkable. Owen Haynes started for the 87s in this tournament, despite Jeremy Connor having better regular season numbers and getting a little more playing time. And, you know, being a veteran, being a 2001 guy, guys age out after, you know, their age 20 or after their age 21 season. And Owen, but Owen Haynes started most of this postseason. It started the entire postseason with the exception of Game 1 against the Little Flyers and the Friday game against the Worcester Junior Railers, which didn't matter except for seeding, just who you were going to play. So, 87s knock off the Wolves 3-1. The Railers and the Express get into a really chippy game Saturday night. The Railers take a lot of penalties early on. couple of really nasty hits in that game and Walpole because they were able especially because they were able to kill so much time with those penalties pull off the upset they get seven power plays they only score on one but they get seven power plays and so that takes a lot of the the wind out of the sails of Worcester's offensive attack Railers took 24 penalty minutes in this game Alex Rakitic a former 87 as a matter of fact last season Scores on the power play, the only power play goal in this game to give him a 1-0 lead. Jarrett Overland scores again, uh, and a guy who had one goal in the re- I think one goal in the regular season had three goals in this Frozen Finals tournament. Alex Pratt, who is a Rhode Island native, he's a Cumberland, Rhode Island native, he's, he's committed to Suffolk University. I got to talk to him for a little bit because I figured, uh, you know, I, I feel like I could do more prep than I probably do in terms of talking to players than I actually do now, but I figured I'd talk to him because he was the one guy on the team who was from Rhode Island, from Cumberland, and I know, I, and I know Rhode Island's a small state. It is the smallest state, but Cumberland, I figured out, was about 20 minutes from Schneider Arena. And so I looked at I and about four miles as the crow flies. So I spoke to Alex for a little while, and again, small world, his dad, with whom we, I think a few of us spoke a little later, his dad was the bus driver for, until Alex was, I think, 10 years old, for Providence men's hockey. For Providence men's hockey. Unbelievable. And Alex had said, yeah, I've been to this arena a number of times. I've, I've, I've been in there. I was in their locker room when I was a kid, in their dressing room when I was a kid. And so Alex Pratt, who was one of the better forwards for this team in this tournament, Ends up scoring the empty netter to pretty much put this game away. Worcester scores late to cut it to 3-1, but that's it. Walpole pulls up, pulls off the upset of the Worcester Junior Railers. They punch their ticket to the final, and it's Walpole against the 87s. This was a very interesting game because you figured that if the 87s score first, and I had said this about the 87s Little Flyers game, 
If the 87 score first because the, the Little Flyers had re relied so much on the first goal and just playing from in front and weathering the storm at the end, they had relied so much on that in their playoff series. If the 87 score the first goal based on Walpole's style of play, odds are the 87s are going to win. They're better at playing from... They're, they're, Walpole's a lot better. They're, they're not bad playing from behind, but they're... They're a very defensive team. They're much better playing from in front. And so the first period was a Walpole-dominated period, I will say. And another thing to note, actually, the Walpole Express, although they have not won since, not won the EHL title since before it was officially the EHL, I think it was still the AJHL at the time, but this still counts, they have won the most titles of any team active or non-active uh, or uh, folded or non-active or, or moved from the EHL with three. They won three consecutive EHL titles or then EJ AJHL titles in the early 2010s. This is a league that's been around. It's going to be 20 years next year that this league has been around in some way, shape, or form. And so the Walpole Express, uh, you know, th those are high standards. And I will say their head coach, Josh Holmstrom, very nice guy, very very smart, incredibly kind guy. I, another thing was it was a very chippy game Saturday night between Walpole and Worcester, and there was uh, I, you know there was a, a, a really a moment where it looked like maybe things were going to get out of hand, but Josh Holmstrom called timeout, relaxed everybody, relaxed his team, realized you know we're still in front, and and calmed everybody down. And that's the sign of a very mature, very smart coach. Look, I couldn't tell you. Look, I couldn't tell you what, it, how good a coach I would be, but I can, I can recognize someone mature like that, someone, you know, common sense like that, someone with great forethought, I believe, and a guy like Josh Holmstrom who did a phenomenal job this year for the Walpole Express, and a team that reached the final. Jack Boschert was phenomenal. Uh, but the 87s did, despite a Walpole-dominated first period, the 87s did limit the major scoring chances, I would say, despite definitely being outshot. Finally, they do score on the, I believe it was on the power play, as a matter of fact, if I take a look here. Yeah, the power play, unassisted power play goal for Jason Atkinson, who ended up being named the most valuable player of the tournament. Understandably so. Jason Atkinson is a fine player, more of a facilitator, really. He's he went on great stretches this year, committed to Castleton University, and you got a nice you got a lot of nice guys in the eighty sevens roster. Everest Schneider ended up scoring forty four, yeah, forty four seconds later on a goal assisted by Matt Herrick. Three oh one guys who would all be aging out, and. Uh, the, the 87s, of course, ultimately held on. 2-0. They were outshot 25-23 in this game. They took a lot of penalties. They took 19 minutes worth of penalties. There was a bad hit by Jimmy Mettler late in the game. But Jimmy Mettler, a guy who is another very talented player, not a, just certainly not a clean hit, but another guy who went out and celebrated, a guy who came in from the New York Apple Corps partway through the season, Guy who, along with Matt Sedanowitz, is committing to UMass Dartmouth, will play there starting next year. That's only about a 30-minute drive from Providence, which which was very very interesting. 
And the 87s won their first ever EHL title. They had won. Strangely enough, the 87s had won the EHLP title last year. The Boston Junior Rangers had won the EHL title. And this year they switched places, and neither of them made the. And neither previous champion had made the tournament this year. So, a very, very odd scenario. Not to mention, had Worcester. Had the Worcester Junior Railers knocked off the Walpole Express in the semifinals, we actually would have had the same finals of both leagues as last year, just in the opposite league, because it was Boston over New Hampshire in the EHL last year, and the same in the EHLP this year. Then you had the 87s over Walpole this year, and it, it was 87s over Worcester last year in the EHLP. So a lot of very strange things. And it turned out the only... The only time that there was a game where the where the higher seed won in the EHL in this entire tournament was the Railers 87s game on Friday, which only mattered in terms of seeding. So the first five games, the lower seed won. It was an upset. Officially, it was an upset every time. Railers knocked off the 87s Friday afternoon to get the one seed. And then once you get to the semifinals, the 87s were a two seed, Walpole was a two seed, and then Walpole and the 87s, they weren't tech, neither of them was technically seeded in that final game. So it wouldn't so it wouldn't have really mattered who won, but it was an upset filled tournament, especially and, and not just that straight guys you wouldn't expect to score were the heroes through much of this tournament. Jarrett Overland scoring the, the only two goals in that first game for Walpole, scored one goal in the regular season. Uh, Jonathan Heiss, a big hero for the Railers in Game 1, scored very little during the regular season. Uh, Eli Brubaker for uh, New England had only played, I think, about 11 games, something like that, or 6 games, something like that, with the EHL team in the regular season. So many different heroes for so many different teams. And just an utterly outstanding, just a really fun, outstanding tournament. And so, you know, before we, before I go out here, I, I, I do just want to say, yes, there is, you know, I covered the 87s during the regular season and into the postseason before the Frozen Finals. So, you know, there are multiple, so it's, it's a little odd when the team that you cover wins the title, especially when you're working for the league. But I have said, and I think I do a pretty good job of it, I would say Anthony does a pretty good job of it, I would say that my goal for every broadcast, and not just that, my goal in my career, one of my goals is to remain as neutral, as unbiased, as factually correct, as fairly opinionated as possible on the air. You know, that's why, you know, that's why I make sure, you know, even when I when I finish up an interview with a player, I won't say congratulations. That is a conscious decision. I will always say thank you for your time. Professionalism and neutrality and I would say, you know, I'm a broadcaster, but I'm also technically a broadcast journalist. Uh, journalistic integrity 
has always been incredibly important to me. And so it was very crucial. As I do this, I bring this into every 87's broadcast, even if it's at Jersey Shore Arena, even if it's during the regular season, you'll see the same sense of professionalism. Now, I will inject a lot of humor into the broadcast. I'll do that. But you'll see the same sense of professionalism, unbiased, uh, lack of bias, and neutrality, and just uh, objective reporting and broadcasting, as you will in the Frozen Finals. You'll see as professional a broadcast as you'll see for me now, as you'll see if I'm ever fortunate enough to cover a Stanley Cup final. I, I make sure to commit to that every time. And so it was so crucial for me to just to just to do that, to bring that to Providence. And I brought that to Westchester last year, when even when the 87s won the EHLP title. You know, we're not there. I'm not there to root for anybody. I'm there to call the game. Yes, I you know, I am employed by the 87s during the regular season, but I am, you know, also in a way employed by hockey TV. I'm employed by the Eastern Hockey League. I'm I'm there to call games. I'm not there to to be I'm not there to be a homer. I am there to call the games and to make it more enjoyable for you to 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 make it more informative and things like that. And that being said, and I again, I don't root for anybody, but I will say that this was a well-earned title for the 87s, especially after last year where they reached the Frozen Finals as the, the best team in the Eastern Hockey League during the regular season, the, high, the, the number one team in the standings. You know, I've watched this team for two years now at multiple levels. And it really, I, I've said this about the 87s, I think you can say it about the Worcester Junior Railers, I think you can say it about New Hampshire, a number of organizations that are among the the best organizations run in this league and, and the best organizations that I have seen run. And that's an example set by the league. You know, I saw on the bus, I saw <laughs> I was walking outside after the game and I saw the 87s bus and I just wanted to talk to some of the coaches and some of the players, etc., etc., about you know the game, things like that, and they had put on a, a little sign. They'd written a sign that was put on the the, the 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 door of the bus that said "2022 National Champions." And I said, "Really, you're putting national champions on there?" And then uh, someone uh, said, "Yeah, you know, we're, we're champions of the best league in the country." Fair enough. I could I could tell you. Look, this is the only hockey league for which I've fully worked, but I can tell you that you will find a number of incredibly hardworking people, and not just players, not just coaches, but executives, broadcasters, officials. You will find incredible people working there from top to bottom. And so when the 87s win, it's, it's not just the team, it's the organization, and it's a reflection of the league. It's a reflection that the league is commanding a, a, a high sense of professionalism, a, a sense of, in many ways, a sense of family when you look at how tight-knit some of these groups are. 
and it's it's just really something to see some something that is so well built from the ground up. And I say that for the 87s, I say that for Walpole, I say that for New Hampshire, Worcester, Philadelphia, uh, and, and the Eastern Hockey League itself. All these teams and the Eastern Hockey League itself. So, uh, I am, uh, again, I don't root for anybody, but I am incredibly grateful to Adam Hooley, the head coach and co-owner of the 87s, Matt Kiernan, the co-owner of the 87s. He was last year's EHLP head coach. He works a lot with the 18U team. He's a, he's a crucial member of the organization. To, uh, to Justin Friedman, one of the assistant coaches, to John Falcone, who actually coached the New York Apple Corps in, took over as the New York Apple Corps coach as an interim for one game. I think it might have been my first game as their broadcaster, at least full-time. To... Connell McNeilis, the head coach of the EHLP team, to Anthony DiPaolo, to, uh, I mean, she she left in the, she, she got a great job in the middle of the year, but to Sam Gotti, the trainer, to uh, uh, Joe, to uh, to Jason, to a number, uh, to Rich Havland, uh, who, who works with the 87s and works with Jersey Shore Arena, to a number of people who have just given me the opportunity to watch some of this. It's been incredible. And I am still looking forward to a bright, bright future with the uh, work covering this team and with this league. And hopefully beyond that. So I thank you so much for your time. I thank you so much for listening. And we'll get back to... Some topical stuff next week on Sports in the Waiting Room.